Hello, and welcome to part two of this episode regarding trauma and the costly adverse outcomes for those living homeless. In part two of this episode, we have conversations in regards to sitting with painful feelings, holding yourself with compassion, and the benefits of trying to stay positive. We also talk about connection, friendships, and what this brings to an individual's mental health, and what occurs for someone when they are not connected to friends or community. Dr. Vivek Murthy, the author of the book Together, states what often matters is not the quantity or frequency of social contact, but the quality of the connection and how we feel about them. Montana, do you see anyone else that identifies differently than male or female within either of your practices? Oh, yeah, I certainly do. Um, I see people from all walks of life. I identify um, in any way, really. Uh, I don't tend to uh, speak about uh, seeing people that have not um, identified their gender. So I like because I live in a small community, but I will say that I, I certainly do see um, people that identify as any gender or non-binary. Montana, when you're thinking about people, it's common for all of us at some point in time in our life, based on the statistics for sure that uh, Lisa shared so kindly with us, that we just sometimes we don't feel well. We're not feeling um, 100%. And how do you have someone come into you and and say, I'm, I'm not feeling well, I need some help, but I'm not sure what. How, how do you help them? We kind of, you kind of talked quite a bit about this, but weave their way back to self. I, I think it's incredible that the way uh, getting help for your mental health has been shifting. I think that the stigma around mental health is, is has had a massive shift, even from when I was in school, like, if you went to a counselor, if you saw somebody for help, you were, you know, whatever you are, you got called names. People mm-hmm. didn't talk about it. I have people making lists with their friends of things to talk to me about, like as their therapist. <laughs> they make lists in their phones and they tell me to tell their friends they're at their therapist's office. Um, yeah, asking them all the questions that they thought up during the week. And That's so I think that's, it's so cool. It's so cool. So I think that by... Uh, you hate to say normalizing, but really, really like talking to people about would you would you be surprised to know that this is a common experience? That's a good question to put out there to people when they not to normalize it, but when people are feeling like you know nobody feels this way. I can't I can't find people who feel this way, and you'd be surprised at how many people actually don't know that. A lot of people suffer with these same things, so we are not alone in our feelings of, of loneliness and sadness and not feeling well. And so um, just identifying for people that these are a lot of these things are common struggles, not that their story isn't unique, but their feelings around them are common. And so we, we are all this collective of people that feels strongly about certain things and has adverse reactions to certain things, and that's now in this time in this day and age it is really common to feel unwell especially right now during a pandemic so normalizing that kind of collective feeling has been really powerful and And decreased stigma around mental health help sorry to interrupt you there and i and i think you know we all give the standard answer whether we're we're struggling with some mental health questions about uh, about things that are stressing us that we all give the standard answer I'm okay when really we're probably not right yeah absolutely so do you want to pull Montana or at least uh, Montana do you want to pull oh. this in a little bit yeah like uh earlier we were just talking about um Lisa's um you've had you've had a life hey <laughs> <laughs> You've had a life. And so I think I, I talked to Lisa about this podcast earlier, and I, I think it's so important to always, um, you know, include, be as inclusive as possible. And so, you know, we don't 
we don't have uh, people in this room who um, are struggling with some of the things that we've talked about today, but uh, Lisa's in this room and she's had quite a journey with, with uh, trauma and um, in her life so far. And she's done a lot of work to um, move through this. And I just was wondering if she could or felt comfortable uh, sharing some of her story um, of the help that she's received or, you know, not received or, yeah, just some of the things that have helped you through maybe. And just a footnote, we have gone through the questions and this was a question that, that Lisa was aware and agreed to be part of. So this, we're not just dropping this bomb on Lisa right now. <laughs> I, I'm honored to share. Uh, I've been in therapy for 20 years. I have tried many, many different types of therapy. I have a, a complex PTSD diagnosis. It's interesting when you were talking earlier, made me think about uh, the last organization I worked at. Um, when I disclosed that I had PTSD and was, you know, actively in therapy for it, uh, which I have been for, like I said, 20 years, um, I was given a letter uh, to give to my therapist that she had to uh, fill out this form that my diagnosis would not affect my work. And I found that actually very shaming and um, that intrusive. was very intrusive into my personal life. And, and the fact that, you know, I was vulnerable and brought forward, you know, I am taking care of my mental wellness and these are the ways I'm doing it. And then to be handed that document was, was kind of a bit of a slap in the face. And this was, you know, only maybe five, six years ago. So, you know, it's, it's, and this is in a helping organization, you know, so the stigma that people face, um, I'm much more confident now talking about being in therapy than I was 15 years ago. I actually kept it a secret for years um, because of the stigma that was, that was surrounded it. So I can really understand and empathize, you know, with people who, who feel like going to therapy may be a sign that they're weak. Uh, most recently, my most profound journey through therapy, uh, the modality I used was Hakomi, H-A-K-O-M-I. And it is a very Eastern married to Western sort of therapy. Uh, my therapist is a, is a practicing Buddhist. And what she helped me realize, and I mean, I've done talk therapy, I've done psychotherapy, I've done, you know, many things to deal with some pretty complex trauma in my youth. Uh, this was the most profound because what she taught me was to, to dive in to my experience, to dive into the pain and to, to assimilate that and to welcome it into my, my house of Lisa uh, because any rejection of any of the experiences that I've had becomes a rejection of self on a very deep level. So, you know, for me to be able to open up my arms and welcome all of these visitors into my home, visitors that, you know, have hurt me and have traumatized me um, and and to welcome them and to love them and to know that they are a part of who I am and they actually have made me resilient and strong and able to connect with people who may have experienced the same things. Um, and I've, I did that in Hakomi therapy all through deep meditative practice um, and my therapist guiding me into really deep and dark and scary places um, and, and in, a, in a really meditative kind of state. So for me, that was, that was something that worked really well. And I think at the end of the day, the takeaway for me is we are the sum of all, all of our parts. Um, I have no control over the things that happen to me, um, but I do have control over welcoming, welcoming them into to my spirit and, and to loving them actually. And, and that, that was the, you know, the, the most amazing part of therapy for me. So, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, Lisa. Montana, do you have anything to add? Um, I, I think that was, I, I, I don't have anything to add. That was Lisa's experience, but I, I thank you for sharing it. Um, I think that, that if that is um, where you're at with that, I think that's profound, really, that you can 
live um, in such uh, authenticity in your life with having experienced what you have and, and valuing that experience as well. Loving it, as you said. Mm-hmm. One of my fundamental beliefs is we are not here to solve whatever problems the client or tenants have or to expedite the process for them. It's on their own timeline, like Montana has already stated. We meet people where they're at. Stasha and I have spoken to this before in previous episodes, and we continue to support them through offering suggestions and following their lead. It's really exciting when you see the shift in people when they have arrived had positive outcomes, are listening to their own narratives, and have newly discovered self-esteem. It's a beautiful process to be able to witness. The teaching for me has always been, we really need to believe individuals will get where they need to go on their own timeline. They are the experts in their own stories. I, you, we cannot become overly involved in the process and need to let go of the desire for an outcome. And this is a big issue in the human services sectors because funding is based on outcomes. You need to show outcomes. So a lot of times there's a lot of pressure to make sure that people are moving through life on the way that funders want to see. And that's not necessarily, well, it isn't. I'm telling you right now, it isn't a healthy thing for anybody. It puts a lot of pressure on the folks we um, are there to provide services to. And it puts a lot of pressure on the people that are actually doing the work. So outcomes suck when they are um, financially driven by funding results. This has been a continual learning for me and is hugely important for individuals. Self-agency is a must. People need to be able to stand in their own power. So I'll open this up to either one of you. Um, can you speak to some of the problems that arise when we try to give people advice based on our own experiences? Uh, yeah, I can say something to that. Just um, I, I stay away from, yeah, the advice giving. Uh, although I would say that um, in my work, it's important for me to uh, be in the room as a human being with the person that I'm talking to that I have had experiences. And uh, when I reflect on some meaningful things that have happened in my conversations with people, often um, when you talk about an experience in your life that has uh, yeah, helped you move through something or has given you, given you some sort of experience that could be similar to theirs, it can make people feel like they're not alone. And so it can help people to feel like they're not alone. I especially find that in working with youth, um, that that works a lot. Now you never want to minimize people's experiences, give them advice, you should do this or you should do that. Again, I think that um, you can turn anything into a question, basically. And so if you're thinking about your own experience with something that will come up in your session or you're talking to people, you are, you know, flashback sometimes in what you've experienced. And if your uh, idea or how you've come through that um, can somehow help somebody else do that, you can, you can pose that in a way that's not advice giving. Maybe you pose a question that, that helps them to look at it from a different angle um, because there are problems arising from that for sure. Uh, if we're constantly just in the state of giving advice. People are unique, their experiences are unique, and the, uh, your favorite word, their outcome might be different. <laughs> I think, I th <laughs> and, <yours. laughs> and I think too, uh, you know, to, to delineate a little bit about what you said, Montana, I found the most profound connections I've made with people over the years when I'm working with them is when we have the ability to freely share stories because stories connect us. So, you know, obviously you need to use professional boundaries, but but if I can relate a story that might resonate with somebody, it, it allows them to feel a little bit more human and a little bit more willing to share perhaps some of their experience. I think it, the golden rule for me is um, how do I erase that power imbalance? How do I take away this this role that I have control and you don't? So I don't necessarily offer a lot of 
advice, I will offer suggestions based on previous knowledge, as you have said before, what am I bringing to the table here? What can, what can, um, what can I possibly suggest that may uh, work for you based on knowing that it's worked before? Well, can but everybody's different. And how can I share a story to connect with That's you right. and, yeah. and not give you advice or tell you how to do it? But to connect on a common ground, I think, is, is really powerful. Stories are important. Yeah. I think sometimes, too, uh, the language around how we do that is by offering. So saying something like, can I offer you a story? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for, for, I keep going back to the youth because I work a lot with youth, but That's okay. uh, it, it, it takes away, it, it can decrease shame so much. Uh, yeah. I have a lot of stories that, you know, I could be ashamed of. Maybe I, actually, maybe I should be ashamed of some of them, but I'm not. And so uh, sometimes when <laughs> sometimes when I'm working with youth and they, you know, they're like, oh, my God, I've just had the, the most, I can't get over this. And I'll be like, really? You wouldn't believe what I did. <laughs> and that, like, do you want to hear it? And they're like, oh, yeah. So, you know, within the, the professional boundaries, like Lisa said, sure. But <laughs> it's good just to, to offer that, you know, the decrease of shame. Decrease of shame and that we're all connected. Yeah. We're mm -hmm. connected through our stories, through our pain and through our joy. I think it's important when we're all working in the sector that we are, that we pay attention to what comes up for us when we're in this uh, human service sector. For anyone who could be connected to an individual working through mental health issues and addiction, do you have any strategies for some of the individuals that are listening? Uh, I know we have a few that are in this sector. How do they, how did they um, sit with some of the triggers that come up for them? Because some of the stories we hear uh, are really hard to sit and listen with. Is this a question for me? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a really, that's a really tough question. Uh, mm -hmm. I think the more that you work, uh, I think it, it, it's hard to answer for, for people like us who have been working in this field for a long time. It's, it's a difficult question to answer for, you know, even somebody like Lisa who's done a lot of work in therapy. Uh, because the more you work with people, the less you're triggered by your own experiences. I find anyways, um, I'm not really, I'm not really thrown back into this feeling of, oh my God, this is triggering me. Like very rarely does that happen. But I remember when it did. And and yeah, I think it's very, very important to pay attention to it at first when that's happening. And then ask why uh, it's happening and where does that put you? And is this an okay place for you to be? Uh, is this an okay person for you to be working with? If it's triggering you to the point where, you know, yeah, you 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 can't um, be in a position of helping. Mm -hmm. Something to look at. Yeah. It's well, vicarious trauma vicarious trauma is is something that happens quite a bit in this in this sector. I I don't know how many in the last in the last two years how many people I have found that are you know have passed away in the room or have died of an overdose and the, and the needle's still in their arm or, you know, they're, they don't look um, like the same person that you just saw half an hour ago. And, and for, I've been in this, in the helping service sector for 30 some odd years. I know I don't look that old, but I am. <laughs> um, but there's some young folks that, that are working. They've just come out of school, you know, they're 26 and 27 and they walk, they walk in a room and, and they're assisting me and I can see the life literally run out of their bodies, yeah. right? And, and I say to them, this is the journey you want to take, then these are the steps you need to do to stay well. You mm. need to do therapy, you need to talk about this, you need to reach out to people and, and get the help. You cannot help when your cup is empty. I think that's a really important Point. And, a, and a difference there, Jackie, too, is that, you know, you are working with extremely vulnerable people, right? So I'm, I'm seeing people uh, at, in a different in a different capacity. So the work that you're doing is, I, I can't even, I really can't imagine anymore seeing, uh, yeah, that level of 
trauma. Uh, when I get to see people, it is kind of removed outside of that, and it is it's somewhere where I'm I'm no longer triggered by it uh, because I'm not I'm not seeing that kind of that heartbreak every day. Uh, it's a different capacity, so I appreciate that that work that you do. That must be incredibly challenging. It, it can be, but again, I've done lots of my own trauma mm -hmm. work and lots of my own uh, stuff from my childhood as well. And, and even, you know, as we grow up in adult, into adulthood and we have relationships and our hearts gets broken and, you know, our children are being raised and their heart gets broken and people, people die in your, in your, in your circle. So there's a lot of things that um, we bring into our work and there's a lot of things we take out from our work, but we need to come in uh, as, as healthy as we can. I think it's important to, I mean, you know, truly having a PTSD diagnosis and a lot of my PTSD is around drug use, uh, suicide, uh, sexual abuse, family violence. Um, so, so those are my personal uh, stories. And throughout my years, I worked with many people with, with those stories. So, you know, for me, I remember early on in the days, I would use my triggers as fuel for social justice. And that was an outlet that really worked well for me for many years um, until I started to recognize that, that it, it was taking its toll on me emotionally. So it was my responsibility uh, to take care of my own house, you know, and, and hence being in therapy for so many years. But, but you know, I, I think it, it's possible but it, it takes it takes work. It takes uh, a community around you. Uh, it takes debriefing. It takes good leadership. It takes good leadership. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had some incredible leaders over the years who who knew this about me, and and I could go close that door of the office and completely fall apart, swear, scream, you know, have terrible humor, <laughs> all of these things in order for me to. <laughs> You know, and you guys have, have definitely been my rock throughout those years. But but I think it's important to know that if if there are things that are going to come up for you personally, they're usually related to a personal experience. So you have a personal responsibility to honor yourself and the people you're working with by by diving into that and, and by making sure that you are doing that debrief. You know, how many times have you come here and... and you know, just in fragments after work, right? Because your shifts after the fire. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And it's like we, you know, mm -hmm. just talk, sis. Mm -hmm. You know, but but without that, I think, you know, and if we're trying to be stoic and and you know, really really strong, and you know what? No way. Um, we need to be able to break, and we need to do that in a safe way. We're we're not going to be, you know, handed a piece of paper. Uh, you need to get your therapist to sign this, <laughs> right? So that's a good segue for this. For me, it's always that I'm, I'm, and I, I love that you brought this forward, Montana, earlier in in our podcast. Authentic. Mm -hmm. I need to be authentic in everything I do at work, and I need to be authentic in my attentiveness to people. And I stay curious. I am probably the biggest curious George on the planet. Being authentic. Being attentive and staying curious is important to the work for me. Mm -hmm. How do you do this, Montana? How do you stay grounded? Oh, my God. What does that even mean? Right? <laughs> uh, man, I don't know how I would be right now if I didn't live in the place I do. I feel very fortunate to uh, live in this beautiful part of Canada. Tell us uh, about it. Oh, just Google it, okay? No, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's just absolutely, I don't even know what to say about it. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of places in Canada you can just hop on a boat in the middle of winter and go out onto the ocean and look at the wildlife and, um, you know, see green all year. And I, I, there's just something peaceful about, about being here. Um, I have to, again, mention my dog. He grounds me. He, he really brings me to life some days when I don't feel very well. Uh, grounding for me has always, always been my connection with my uh, good friend. It grounds me. It makes me feel um, like I am connected truly to this world. Um, and 
also connecting with other people that I that I see in my work that grounds me that brings me right back to this world has so many uh, things going on but we have so many people that are you know seeking help and and if that is my purpose my life of servitude in that um, then I'm happy and that that grounds me knowing that I serve a purpose and knowing that uh, my days are, are filled with hopefully having meaningful conversations with people that that need them. Montana, what's the secret to helping people thrive? Have you found it? Mm, nope. Mm -mm. <laughs> Not this at all. Uh, is over then. <laughs> no. The secret to helping people thrive, uh, I think I mentioned before, um, well, I don't think it's a big secret. I, I actually think it's just very simple, and that's just being human with them. So having this power over people where we're considered an expert in authority or expert in whatever, you know, we've all seen that, the three of us, in, in different capacities in the work we've done, uh, and letting go and relinquishing that idea that we have power over anyone uh, or anything, really, it, it's quite a freeing experience because it allows you to experience um, each person uh, at the level that they're on, including yourself, the level that you're on. And um, I guess thriving is, is just a, a weird word because that that in itself is a word that uh, is very personal. What's thriving to you might not be thriving to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, getting through the day might be thriving to a person. But again, I would take it back to uh, equalization of our existence and making sure that that's the secret simplicity. Lisa, when, when you think about life, how do you stay positive when things get hard for you? What have you learned through your different modalities of therapy that you've been in that teach you how to stay positive? How do you sit with your pain? How do you feel comfortable with it? Well, I, I radically accept myself in all of my foibles and glories. Um, I don't put any pressure on myself to thrive or be positive at any given moment in time. Um, where I'm at is where I'm at. So radically accepting my human condition has been, I guess, a key for me because when when you have that level of gentleness with yourself, mm -hmm. uh, you can have that level of gentleness moving around the world. So if I'm having a shitty day, I'm having a shitty day and I say it. Hey, guys, I'm having a shitty day. I think just basically you know, uh, honoring and welcoming each emotion allows you to be a human. Nobody walks around positive all the time. And if they do, stay the fuck away from me. <laughs> I'm actually not interested. You know, that that concerns me. Right. So, yeah, for me, it's it's just really a, a gentle kind of acceptance and a radical acceptance at times of of who I am and, and where I'm at. Do you have anything to add to that, Montana, on about, you know, ideas on how we can sit uh, with with compassion for ourselves when things are a little bit difficult and we're not um, being able to stay positive? Um, yeah, I mean, there's the idea that it's, that we all have really negative self-talk and when we pay attention to that in our day-to-day, -day, um, you know, we mess up or we do something uh, if we start paying attention to how much that happens, uh, for a lot of people, uh, including myself, um, paying attention to the way that we talk to ourselves is really important. So, you know, if you're having an off day and you're saying, you're an idiot, get out of bed, like, say that all the time, uh, you're worthless, you're, you know, you're not, we do all that we can. And so Lisa brings up a good point to just like sitting with yourself right and and accepting all that you are and i'm reminded of the work of tara branch who talks about yeah. radical really totally and um, that's that's who i learned it from and meditation has given me that that ability actually i'd like to just throw that out there mm -hmm. and it comes differently yeah. for everyone uh that's what worked for me yeah um and uh, to add to that is uh, mindfulness. So being mindful of your day to day when you're feeling um, like you're disconnected or, or not okay, take a moment. Everybody has a moment, uh, even when you're not 
feeling like you have a second. There are little tiny things that you can do that that make you feel more present. Uh, you know, washing a dish and smelling the soap, and how does the how does the hot water feel on your skin, and what do you smell, and what do you see, and what do you taste? Those are really basic concepts, but ground yourself, be back in your body, and um, those little things can do a lot for when you're feeling a little uh, not okay. When you're deep in depression and you can't get out of bed, those are really difficult things to even consider that I'm going to go smell the dish soap and that I'm going to find anything positive. So when people are really deep, like Jody talked about um, Indigenous people during the pandemic, they can't get to celebration, they get, can't get to some of the things that help them move forward and they're deep, deep in the wounding, their kids have been apprehended and they're drinking a lot. Suggestions for some folks that are deep, deep in the pain. Do you have any there? Hmm, I have to think about that uh, for a minute, actually. I work such a, again, on, on such an individual perspective. I like to hear what people have to say coming from them mm -hmm. and how they're feeling. So I can't, I, I have trouble kind of um, generalizing. Well, I have trouble generalizing and I have trouble painting with such a wide brush. Like mm -hmm. what I, I, in my practice, it would be more of a questioning on uh, what are the rays of light, you know, like there's something and there's something that's, that's keeping you wanting to be here and wanting Can you to be. repeat that? Because that's beautiful. Uh, focusing on the rays of light. The rays yeah. of light. Mm -hmm. So finding that ray of light there might be one there might be many i'm reminded of uh this paper that was written and i can't remember who wrote it i think it was michael white uh there's always a puppy so that is a, a fabulous paper if you ever get a chance to read it uh, i won't get into it but essentially operating on that uh the ray of light there's always a puppy if you ever read that that paper it, it's it's so good but it is that concept of like, no matter what, there's always a puppy. There's always a ray of light. And as a practitioner, as, a, as somebody who works with people that are often in darkness, um, curiosity, authenticity, those things we talked about earlier will help you um, help that person find that ray of light, that puppy. And um, yeah. And I, I think too, really sometimes when when it doesn't feel like there's a ray of light and i've been there in my my own personal journey the most important thing that i can do or that the message i can give anyone in that state is if you can't find the ray of light at the very least be gentle with yourself suspend mm -hmm. judgment and just just be gentle hold with yourself, yourself with hold yourself with with love, love. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. For me, what I see most is a despairing level of loneliness, of alienation, loss of family, friends that is vital to connectedness, loss of community, people are dispossessed of their lands and their station in life. This is another layer of living homelessness that is truly at a humanistic level, tragic and painful to bear witness to. I cannot, I cannot imagine that being someone's reality every day, but for so many it is. And there are costly outcomes from this, depression, anxiety, disconnection from self and others, homelessness, self-harm, suicidality, substance use, and violent behaviors. Ladies, if COVID has taught us anything, it's the value of staying connected. What are your thoughts on the importance of connectedness? Lisa, do you want to start? Sure. I think that, um, you know, throughout my life, if one thing has sustained me, it is my connection to my tribe. Uh, and throughout this process of COVID, and the only thing that that has sustained me is my connection. So, you know, to me, connectiveness is the single most important things a human needs beyond food and water and shelter. Uh, if we, you know, and, and I've seen this, you know, and you see it too in your work, Jack's working with folks that are, you know, living homeless, the sense of community that exists for those people um, and, and when they let you into it, it is such a rich tapestry of 
community. It's beautiful to witness. And I've seen more community in, in those communities than I have in, you know, more like the clinical tables I've sat at or, you know, in, in my work. So sometimes, sometimes, sometimes there are still sure. some on the outskirts that are alienated, no matter what they do. No, absolutely. Even in the homeless community, there's homeless people. Absolutely. Yes. No, absolutely. But and it's true. It is very rich. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's the single most important human need in, in mm -hmm. my estimation and experience. Uh, so whatever I can do in my life, uh, you know, to support other people or to, to be supported, it involves connecting. Uh, my tribe is, is my most sustaining uh, thing uh, that I've ever experienced and will ever experience. Montana? Um, I agree, Lisa. Like, it's so important to have. I learned that I moved here. I moved here in um, kind of the height of the pandemic, and uh, I I kind of left a really quite a, yeah emotionally abusive relationship. Uh, left everyone that I kind of knew and had even you guys connected with, um, and just kind of left it all behind. And I. I couldn't believe the support. I couldn't believe the outpouring of support I had, even just in that small part in my life. Um, that felt very large, uh, and it felt I felt very, very grateful to have um, a connection to so many wonderful people and and be, feel so supported. Um, I think that what I would like to add is that we are now living in an age where we are. Uh, more or we have the ability to be connected to anyone and everyone and everything more than ever before. But in those connections, we need to remember um, what we're connecting to. So connecting online, connecting however we're connecting, just really to pay attention to the things we're connected to uh, because it's, it's, it's easy to get sidetracked and, and lose uh, lose the idea of connectedness in social networking or social media or um, losing it in the things that we are losing it, losing it in the areas that we are connected to. So I just think it's really important to value what you feel in your body as being connected or what grounds you, what connects you. That's important. Lisa, would you quickly just uh, talk a little bit about uh, a very passionate thing for you was the Make a Connection uh, that started at the Calgary Scope Society. Can you yeah. just explain that a little bit to folks, what that was? And that was, uh, that was pretty a, groundbreaking at yeah, the time. It was very groundbreaking and it was groundbreaking for me to observe. <laughs> That's maybe where I learned a lot about how important connection is. And uh, so we had about 400 members in this, this video dating service. Who was it for? It was for uh, individuals uh, with intellectual disabilities. And so uh, what we learned very quickly is that folks didn't even have the ability or the knowledge or experience to pick up the phone and dial up a friend. They didn't even know how to have a conversation on the phone. I mean, we were starting at, you know, with a marginalized population, but but starting at, at ground zero, you know, and, and I think, unfortunately, uh, you know, people are desperate for connection and, and that's what we found, you know, so we had a town hall to even come up with the idea of, of you know, introducing this service um, and Denise Young, who, who was my, my boss at the time, told me that at the town hall, people came in like full suits, like they were ready to date right there. And, and it was just a town hall to talk about the, developing this program, you know, so, so the need was, was, was desperate. And throughout the years, it was six years I ran that program. And, you know, we went from people not, not being able to make a phone call to, you know, to all of the, the, um, you know, different levels of learning about, you know, uh, <laughs> learning about boundaries, learning about 
how to be a good friend or partner. And, and you know, lots of folks were learning these, these things the hard way. They didn't have family support. They didn't have, you know, uh, their support workers were challenged by some of the ideas that, you know, that we were raising that perhaps people with disabilities were also sexual beings, you know, so we had many ethical considerations throughout that process um, while we were unpacking what it meant for these people to feel connected. Um, and some of those ethical conversations were groundbreaking and uh, pivotal in, in, you know, my learning, um, but also in, in kind of peeling back the layer that, that we all need to learn how to connect and, and we're all at different levels. And sometimes that, that means that we make mistakes. Um, sometimes that means that we hurt people. Sometimes that means that we get hurt, you know, so, so it was a very deep and, and broad subject, of course. Um, but it was, it was profoundly uh, beautiful to watch people, the seeds of friendship and, and tribes, and we had people get married, like it was just such a beautiful experience to observe. It was, it was so much fun back in the day. Yeah. So you brought up friendship. And we have been friends for many a season now. And when I think about friendship, I truly believe it's a privilege not afforded to a lot of folks that we have journeyed with throughout our lives. And we've seen that demonstrated over and over again. Loneliness is debilitating. Loneliness is, uh, it leads to early death. Uh, our seniors are very lonely. Mm -hmm. The loss of friendship is, as Montana said, uh, can be very traumatic. And we also know the folks that I work with uh, that are experiencing homelessness or are very vulnerably housed. Once they get housed, a lot of folks leave housing that have been, that have been homeless chronically or absolutely homeless for a long time because they have lost their network. So they go back to homelessness to be with their friends. So let's talk about, and we'll start with you, Montana, the value of friendship and the mental wellness that this brings to people. There is not, there are not enough words to explain how important friendship is in your life. I, I feel inclined to talk about long-term friendships because of course those, you know, for me with, with you guys and, and other people that I've known my whole life, uh, there's just no words to describe the value that that brings to my life. Uh, but I do have to think about how important it is to um, recognize that you can have meaningful friendships in your lives and they can, they can fall away. And this is important. I think this is an important thing to think about because uh, often there is a grief, a loss in, in friendships. And, and we don't talk about, uh, we talk about relationships breaking up in terms of romantic relationships, but we don't talk enough about, about friendships and how those can fall and how those can um, move and change. And we don't necessarily have to weather all storms. Sometimes uh, when people change in their lives, they need to meet and be with new people. And um, I, sometimes I, I find in my work, I are, are stuck um, in friendships that, that are, are not healthy anymore. And moving them through that experience or helping them move through that experience and finding um, new positives, new people to meet. Um, talking about the existence of a whole world out there. I mean, not right now, because obviously <laughs> you got to be social distance. So mm -hmm. but there are, there are many, there are many different, um, there are many different versions or there can be many different versions of your story and there can be many, many different people that play an active role in that story. And there can be many friendships that, that uh, come in, in and out of your life. But um, yeah, I think it's very important to acknowledge the importance of friendships and the importance of even making new friends. Um, I like that Lisa talked about make, make a connection because I think that at its very, you know, at its at the beginning of it all, that's kind of what it's all about is is making the connection, and whether that happens when you're 75 or whether that happens when you're two years old, they're meaningful. 
They are that. Montana, is there anything else that you would like to share with us before you have to leave us? Any um, final I, words? <laughs> I love you both a lot. <laughs> um, I I think that I, I, I've said a lot. Uh, I want to acknowledge that, you know, there are no people in the room that are currently experiencing homelessness. And I acknowledge that. And I, I don't like to speak on behalf of uh, people. I don't like to talk about people when they're not in the room. Um, mm -hmm. So I've tried to, you know, limit the amount that I talk about, um, yeah, certain certain populations of people because they're not in the room to talk for themselves. And so um, I just want to acknowledge that I'm a, I'm a person who sits in a room talking with other people who have, yes, spent their lives uh, in servitude for people that um, are coming through different things in their life, but um, it is so important to me that authenticity piece of like we had that as a thing uh, in the disability community and I use it uh, all the time and it even in my practice now and it's uh, nothing about you without you too and I think that's really 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 important and that really is kind of the theme of my practice is that I don't want anything to be um, about a person it, it's collaborative it's with you uh, so yeah I think that's I'm glad that I could share this time and this experience and I'm so grateful for you to ask me to be on this podcast a person that is not homeless and can speak to some of the things that it's issues that people are are dealing with but I, I'm really grateful for the friendships we have and together and for um, you know my 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 privilege in, in being here Montana my darling friend what brings you joy when you think about everything in your life what brings you joy uh, so many things bring me joy. <laughs> um, I think primarily, I think it's, uh, my dog, Wilbur, my bulldog, cause I love him so much. And, um, you know, I just, I guess through this whole process, like pandemic and social isolation, I just, I feel very, uh, joyful to be living in the place that I live and having access to so much outdoor space and green space and water and um, also really solid friendships and access to solid friendships. Um, in this day and age, I feel so grateful that we have the technology we do and, and, and we're able to, you know, get through this uh, pandemic while being able to see our friends on um, FaceTime or, or however you want to see them in any kind of electronic device. So that, that brings me joy. I know that's kind of a it's kind of a weird thing to have that bring you joy, but then it takes these things to kind of recognize um, what we are grateful for. And so I guess that also brings me joy is um, recognizing all the things that, that I'm so grateful to have and um, recognizing and acknowledging that privilege that I have to live in such a beautiful space um, and respecting that. And uh, sleeping brings me joy also. <laughs> I love to sleep when I can, so that's good. Um, and yeah, uh, I think that's a few of the main things. Well, my dear friend, getting to see you via Skype has brought me a great deal of joy today. And you imparting your wisdom and some of your knowledge and expertise on some of the issues regarding trauma. I know you couldn't speak uh, a lot about the homeless and that you do not like to speak about people not in the room a great deal of the time. Uh, they may not be in the, in the room, but they are definitely in my heart and always on my mind. So I appreciate everything you brought to this podcast episode and I love you dearly. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. And that's a lovely thing to say. I love how you said that. That's amazing. Agreed. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. Lisa, you have taught mental health first aid. Can you please tell us what this is and share what you've learned from teaching people about mental health? Sure. Yeah. Um, I've been teaching mental health first aid for about four years now uh, with the Mental Health Commission of Canada. I'm a trained facilitator. So mental health first aid is, is basically the support provided to a person who may be experiencing a decline in their mental well-being or a mental health crisis. 
So, like I had talked about, um, one in every five Canadians experiences a mental health problem within a given year. While we often know a lot about physical illness, there tends to be less knowledge about mental health or substance use problems. This lack of understanding, as we know, leads to fear and negative attitudes towards individuals living with these problems. It prevents problem, sorry, it prevents people from seeking help for themselves and from providing appropriate support to people around them. Um, so mental health first aid is, is, is very important um, in that uh, it, it teaches kind of anyone uh, how, to, how to talk to someone who's experiencing a mental health crisis. Yeah, that's important. Because, you know, a lot of, a lot of you know, people's resistance to support is the fact that they, they don't have the language, they don't know what that person is going through. So in basic mental health first aid, which I teach, we talk um, a lot about uh, um, basically what what are the uh, what are the diagnoses, and and we certainly don't go into every single one of them, but we do cover the the most common ones. So I talk a lot about you know what does it look like uh, when a person with schizophrenia is experiencing a mental health crisis. Uh, what is schizophrenia? Let's talk about that. So I teach people about uh, what the mental illnesses are that they're most, you know, most likely to come across. Because most people think schizophrenia is the person that is doing the mass mass killing in... in... Oh, absolutely. There's yeah. so much stigma out there. Mm -hmm. and, and what I've learned and one of my... Well, first I'll talk a little bit, just the overview. So I teach about those things. And I also teach about substance use disorder. But I teach about specific substances. So I teach about what it looks like when someone is is doing crack cocaine or methamphetamine, mm -hmm. as opposed to someone who smokes marijuana. Right. You know. So so what are the differences in the substances? How do they present when someone's in crisis? And and what does that person need? So you know we talk a lot about communication, about dignity, about respect. Um, we do this really interesting uh, uh, little uh, activity where I'll make um, I'll make three people kind of in a group, and one person rolls up a piece of paper and and puts it up against the, the other person's ear and and says things like you're worthless, nobody likes you, you're a terrible person, and so while that's happening to that individual, they're having to have a normal conversation with the person across the table. So just to kind of illustrate even a fragment of what it what it's like to live with a hallucinatory uh, disorder, you know that's that's actually a really cool exercise, and and you could do that with anyone to kind of show, you and know. Could you quickly just say for the people that don't uh, have the language, what mm -hmm. is an a hallucinatory disorder? So that's that's any of your your uh, psychiatric disorders that would um, that would give you you know auditory or olfactory. Um, um, hallucinations. So you're you're seeing people that aren't there. You're hearing voices outside of your brain. You're hearing them in your ear from the outside, or you're smelling, tasting, touching things that that aren't there for anyone else. Thank and you. The, I would like to say that these things are one hundred percent real for the person experiencing. Absolutely, them. they are. You know, so you you have to be very gentle and compassionate about that. So. Uh, yeah, and one of the coolest experiences I've had um, is is teaching. I taught at uh, oh a huge construction company. I can't remember the name of it right now, um, but it was in their corporate office downtown Calgary. And so I had you know twenty five hardened construction workers who were showing up, still smelling like booze from the night before, kind of thing, and mm -hmm. you know really kind of your your typical, I you know. I wouldn't know. I don't want a broad brush, but a, a lot of these folks had had zero experience with mental health. So, or thought they had, or thought they had yeah. until we started to unpack some of this stuff. And oh, my aunt Edna was always a little odd in that way. I wonder if she had that. Or oh, my wife struggles with things. I'm telling you, the aha moments were just beautiful in these big burly construction workers. Many of them throughout the experience were in tears. At the end of the two-day workshop, I had a lineup, 15 men deep, and they all wanted to have, you know, a conversation with me about resources, about, 
you know, do you think maybe, you know, this, this is what this is? Or do you know anyone who could help me with this? And, and weeping, you know, so just even opening up the door to talk about and educate people was so empowering for them to be able to name it. And I think courses like these, these two-day courses are really important because knowledge gives power and power brings relief and understanding and opens up a world of compassion. And like, it does, Jax. And like mm -hmm. I was talking about earlier, it brings about connection. That's right. So to feel connected to your fellow humans, literally, in my experience, the most important thing. And I, and I, I do see that happen. I see it happen in the classroom. And I've received emails from countless people that I've taught over the years, you know, after the fact. Just wanted to touch base and say thank you. That information has changed the way I connect to my family, my neighbors, my community, my workplace. So, you know, having the language is, is, is critical. You know, it's, it's, it, it allows us to connect. So right now during the pandemic, we are offering uh, this workshop virtually. And so there, there, there are no classroom facilitated uh, uh, courses at this time. But uh, if anyone is wanting to take the class, uh, I would encourage you to go to, um, uh, the website is mhfa.ca. So it's the acronym for mentalhealthfirstaid.ca. Now it's important as well to note that we, um, we offer um, a standard mental health first aid, which is what I teach. We offer um, one for the veteran community we offer uh, one for adults who interact with the youth. We offer one for uh, First Nations folks. Uh, we offer one for Inuit folks. And we offer one for the police now, which is Fantastic, because so they need to understand mental they, health. Oh my gosh. Put your guns How down many, and right? talk to people. How many years yes. did we Fight to get that. that mm -hmm. um, and as well for, for Northern peoples and seniors and the veteran community. So that was, uh, they received fund, we received funding from the Department of Veterans Affairs. So, so the, there's lots and lots of kind of specific workshops that teach the same curriculum, but, but it's really kind of geared towards, you know, maybe your youth population or your Inuit population, um, you know, and, and, and the teachers and the facilitators in, in the indigenous and the, the uh, Inuit um, are always joined by a person who is Indigenous or Inuit. Perfect. So that's really important to note as well. So this is a two-day course. Yeah. The first day looks like what? Um, the first day we go into uh, uh, psychiatric disorders, um, so, or you know, mental, mental health diagnoses. Uh, so we, we review all of those. Um, and it's a lot of information, a lot of learning, uh, as well as substance use disorders and, and how they present with, with different substances. The second day is about how do we support people. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and it's a, a highly interactive uh, workshop, so your learning is, is really kind of, um, I guess it would be kinesthetic. You're, you're, you're working together as groups to work through things. And the first day is, is a bit more of lecture just because of the nature of, of what we're chatting about and mm -hmm. what, what I'm teaching. But the second day is really, really exciting because people get to do scenarios and, and really kind of uh, work through it, sink their teeth into what they learned the, the day before. And is there a cost to it? There is a cost to it, yes. Um, and, and usually it works out. Now you can, if you're, if you're an organization, you can, you can negotiate a price. Um, but usually it works out to about I think the most you can be charged is $125 for the two days. Some facilitators choose to charge less, uh, but that's kind of the ceiling of what you can expect to pay. You are provided with um, a certificate uh, from the Mental Health Commission of Canada at the end of, of your learning. And uh, yeah, I think, I think it's a good start. I don't think it's perfect by any means. Right. I mean, the learning we did was in the streets, yeah. <laughs> you know, so this is, this is a bit more... In our childhood homes, yes. Yeah, exactly, and in our work, Jacks. You know, but I, I, I think that it, it's a very good start just to, just to educate and give people the language to connect 
So is this a back-to-back course? So day one and day two in, in a weekend, Tuesday, Wednesday Typically night? Typically it is, okay. although um, some people spread it out over two weekends. We okay. do as facilitators have the freedom to do that based on what our, our classroom needs. Uh, the virtual is is uh, broken up because it's it's hard to stare, as we all know, at a screen you know, for, for eight hours for two days. So it's broken up into segments. Okay. Um, and e- again, each facilitator will decide kind of what those segments look like. So if you go to that website, you'll see a big old list of who's teaching it and dates and times so you can work through what works for you. That's as, great. As well, you can, you can search for a facilitator and just hire someone um, and then they can, you know, they, they can work with you to de- determine what works best. Lisa, thank you for bringing that forward, and I, I would recommend it to anybody. I've taken mental health first aid about 10 years ago, and I do need to update it because there is always new and relevant information, and things mm-hmm. do change. Mm-hmm. So I would recommend that highly, and we will include the link yep. on the information on this podcast. Lisa, my friend, last question for you. When you think about your life, what brings you joy, my friend? Well, over the years, it has become smaller and smaller, uh, but more meaningful. I think uh, what brings me joy now is very simple. Uh, Having a garden and having a library. (laughs) Um, Being able to cook nourishing food for the people that I love. Um, Good music, spending time with my children. I, I think things have become much simpler and more wholesome. Whereas, you know, earlier on in my life, I needed kind of more edgy experiences to fulfill me or maybe even to feel anything. Um, Now I can get lost for an hour watching the rain hit the window and and just looking at the beauty of, of how simple and profound our world is in each and every moment. Uh, So I, I think that kind of wraps it up, Jax, is that my life has become so much simpler over the years and for that I am so grateful. I'm so grateful to have my needs met and I'm so grateful to be surrounded by people that also appreciate those things. I have a small community but it's very meaningful to me and we all kind of enjoy the same things and and enjoy the simple pleasures in life. So yeah, I don't know, that's about it, I guess, simple. That's a beautiful answer. Thank I love you, you, sister. Thank you so much for your time and energy and, and sharing your knowledge about the things we spoke to today. Absolutely. Love pleasure. and adore you. Love you too, Jax. A call to action. Be part of the conversation to normalize mental health issues. Be someone who cultivates a space for vulnerability and promotes a culture of healing by leaving room for people to be their authentic selves where they're free from shame, stigma, and guilt. Live and work through a lens of loving kindness and create social change through connectiveness. And please, when you see or hear racism, when required to do so, call it out. Don't be a silent witness to someone else's oppression. I offer this last quote for the podcast series, which is one from my favorite authors, Brene Brown. Mindfully practicing authenticity during our most soul-searching struggles is how we invite grace, joy, and gratitude into our lives. My belief is, if we can do this, it can culminate into building a compassionate world for everyone and maybe the beginning of wholeheartedly addressing the opiate epidemic and ending the tragedy that is homelessness. Because everyone deserves a home and healthcare. Sister Baradol and I are incredibly grateful for our guest on this series who shared their infinite wisdom and spoke so passionately about all the issues that are gateways to addiction, mental health issues, and homelessness. Our hope was that you would leave these episodes hopefully feeling more informed and that we've shifted your opinion and you can look upon those who are living homeless with a new perspective Who knows, maybe you're motivated to be a catalyst to create change and solutions and meaningful lives for all those who live in this Canadian state. Our guests shared their knowledge 
and we spoke to what they had insight into. No one knows everything about a subject. If you have a question or want to know more or have something we shared explained further or clarified, please feel free to leave me a comment or a question. I'll get back to you. I would also really love to know who took away a lesson. What was something that resonated with you? What is your takeaway from these episodes? It would be great to hear from you. One final shout out to our beloved Sister Diversity Reigns, a sister of the Abbey of the Long Cedar Canoe of the Vancouver Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Hey, Diversity, it was such a joy to have you tune in for every episode and provide us with those lovely positive comments, your inquisitive questions, and your beautiful suggestions. We appreciate you and your support of this community, Sister Talks Podcast. To our listeners, please continue the journey with us and join us for our next podcast series on those aging in the 2SLGBTQTIA plus communities and housing requirements specific to this population. And for our sister community talks, our stories, a podcast series about ordinary people doing extraordinary community work. We would appreciate you sharing this podcast and the future series planned with your family and friends. And if you are so inclined, please consider rating this podcast. Thank you, our fabulous listeners. It has truly, truly been an honor to have you spend your valuable time listening to the words of our guest and myself for this podcast series. Hey, beautiful people, stay curious, stay open to joy.